Pastor Walt and I have tried to uh, <clears throat> emphasize a little bit with our offering just a, uh, a bit of a story to talk about uh, church. We want to start telling the church's story and to have it mixed up with the offering and the building campaign. Uh, you know, we've got some decisions to make uh, about our building in the next couple of months. And uh, um, when we first, when we came, when Nellie and I came to Grace Point, uh, our son was already a sophomore, uh, a junior actually at PUC, and he had met uh, one of his best friends there. <clears throat> and um, his uh, Mark uh, grew up around our church in Lodi, but uh, he he never joined it. And, I, and one, I guess the one thing that attracted him to our church was his now wife. Uh, it's kind of like a, a Pastor Walton Brenda story. They've been going out since they were in elementary school. And um, he, uh, she's, a, she's a pastor's uh, daughter, and uh, they got, when they graduated PUC, they got married. They went to Loma Linda for a while. Well, now they're living here, uh, living here in Rockland. And when they, last year when they moved here, they were looking for a place to live. Andrew was here, and they were, they were visiting. And um, I was just, uh, Nellie and I were just sitting here on, on, on a Sabbath morning just worshiping, and all of a sudden we get this text. And it's a picture of Mark and Melissa and Andrew. And they were sitting right back there. They didn't tell us they were coming. And <laughs> but afterwards, Mark observed. He, he looked around and he, and, and he said, he said, so, he said, so this is a multi-purpose room, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, it kind of looks like a gym. And I said, well, it's, that's, that's its plan. That's, you know, that's what we have you know, in the plans for it is to be able to use it for multi-purpose when we, when we build our, our, our new church. And um, he said, he said, let me tell you something. He, he said, I was so attracted to uh, going to school at the Lodi, at the, at Lodi Academy and everything else because uh, the Lodi Church and the school had put on a community basketball league at the school's gym. And he said, and that's how I got introduced to the church. That's how he met Melissa and everything else. So he told me, and this was last year, he said, if you ever do this, if you ever turn this into a gym and you make a basketball league, he says, don't worry about running it. He said, I'll run it. So nearly a year later, we meet Officer Chris Osborne, who wants to uh, have this for a gym for the Police Athletic League. After we met with the chief of police of Rockland, who said, hey, one of our needs is the Police Athletic League needs a gym. And and I, I told the, the community outreach when we left that meeting with the chief of police, I said, I know what I'm praying for. I found my favorite, okay? But uh, um, to, to wrap it all up in today, he saw on Facebook the, the trouble that we had, and Mark actually texted Andrew to tell us that he was willing to come and help if, if, if we needed. You know, I, I, I think one of the things about church is legacy. What is it we leave? Uh, and we wanted to try to get across to you that it's 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 more than buildings, and 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 power and lights and everything else. And I and I kind of made a joke that today's offering was about actually power and lights and carpet and and baseboards and, and things like that. And it is, but even even in the midst of this, we see where God is leading us here in this community. And um, I'm I'm never going to be so happy to make a phone call that when this is turned into a gym to call Mark and say, hey, guess what? Come take a look at your gym. It's time for you to start your basketball program. So uh, 
as we ponder the end of the year, as we ponder uh, all of our finances and what to do, I just hope that uh, that you keep um, our our building current and future uh, in your prayers uh, and in your dreams and the dreams for a legacy for this community, for our children, and for ch- uh, other people's children too. So, thank you for for that moment. Thank you for listening. Uh, her full name, her name was Ruth Oliver. When uh, we got to our church, when we came from seminary and we got to our church, we met Ruth Oliver, but uh, we didn't know her as Ruth Oliver. Everybody called her Aunt Ruth. Because by the time that we met her, she was called Aunt Ruth because by the time we had met her, she had already celebrated her 102nd birthday. Still coming to church every Sabbath, she was still living alone, as a matter of fact. Okay. And I saw Aunt Ruth, uh, got to see Aunt Ruth almost uh, every Sabbath. And then as the years went on, we got to see her a little less and a little less, uh, uh, to the point to where the time that we saw her, any time that we, th- that we saw her was the Sabbath before her birthday. The Sabbath before her birthday is when she would come because she said, well, I'm not passing up cake. We'd have potluck for her, and then we'd give her cake. She said, well, I'm not passing up cake. So, so, so no matter what kind of shape she was in, she would always show up for her birthday. Um, I, I could tell you a bunch of stories, but at, like I said, at 104, she was still living at home. And uh, about 2.30 in the morning one morning, she had a fall. This was the fall that actually led to her having to begin to uh, find some assistance in assisted living. But uh, at 104, she fell, and she couldn't. She couldn't get up. I know it's a stupid commercial, but, but when it's 104 Aunt Ruth, that, you know, she couldn't get up. And she has Lifeline. It's around her neck. Okay? But I don't know if you know how Lifeline works. Lifeline is, is on call, all right? You push the button, but they call whoever your designated caregiver is. Okay. Well, her designated caregiver was Bonnie Test, and Bonnie lived in the same apartment complex, but she didn't want to wake Bonnie up. She crawled out of her bathroom to her bedroom, drug herself along, reached up, grabbed her blanket and her pillow, pulled it down onto the floor, and waited until 9 o'clock and then pushed the button. That was Aunt Ruth. I mean, that's the best story I could tell, Aunt Ruth. I couldn't... Um, she, she died shortly after we got here, and she almost made it just a couple more months to her 110th birthday. <laughs> when you talk about our our, uh, our reunions, how would you how would you like to? Her reunion is is that she is the Union College class of 1918. <laughs> Union College class of 1918. Okay, she told me she said I didn't have a chance. Actually, she said even for our 10 year reunion, she said because most of my nursing class in that class actually died in the flu epidemic of 1918. But she graduated college in 1918. I tell you the story because when she moved to the assistant living center down in Ukiah, it was it was one that uh, wasn't considered uh, a nursing facility. It was considered retirement assisted living because she could still get around. She wasn't in the wheelchair full time. And I went to visit her. And the amazing thing about her was that no matter how long you went between visits, she still remembered everything about you. 
You know, she, not only did she recognize me, she would ask me how Nellie was doing. She would ask me how Andrew was doing. She'd ask about Maria and Steve. She never even met Maria and Steve. So I, I went to visit her, and she said, she said I, have, I have something to talk to you about. I, I, I need your help. And she said that she was having nightmares regularly. Now, get, she's 106 years old. She said, I'm having these nightmares regularly. She said, Satan is pursuing me in these nightmares, and he's terrorizing me, and he will not let me sleep. And I said, well, Ruth, you know, we'll certainly pray. You know, we, you know, this is spiritual warfare, and we'll we'll certainly pray. We'll pray now, and and we'll continue continue to pray. But when I left that day, when I left and I was driving home, I thought, what kind of being must he be? 106 years old, that he would pay that much attention to her. 106. 106, living in this existence where really her closest relative was a a third cousin's niece because the rest of her family is gone. And the only thing about Ruth, the only thing about her was that she loved Jesus and that he would pay this much attention to this poor woman. I told you last week that you are God's Christmas tradition. That before there was even a thought of human thought in our mind, God had already created us, had already seen us fall, and had already saved us in essence because God is not bound by linear time. You've been in his mind from eternity in existence. You are his Christmas tradition. He knew before time began that he would send Jesus one day to celebrate the first Christmas in order to save you and me. He already knew that. Now, I think of, I, I think of this time of year, and I think uh, when we were talking about this last year, as a matter of fact, Luke 2 says, In that region there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for see, today born in the city, I am bringing you good news of great joy to all people, for unto you a child is born this day, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign that you'll find a child wrapped in the bands of cloth and lying in a manger. Now, there's nothing wrong with calling this verse to mind. How many, how many hear this? This is my favorite narrative of the Christmas story. When I hear this read, and I told you last year, when I hear this read by Linus on a Charlie Brown Christmas, I know it's Christmas. In fact, I played it for you last year, remember? I played the clip for you. When I hear Linus say those words, I know it's Christmas. Amen? Great. And there's nothing wrong with that, but... What happens when you hear these words is like, I remember 50 years ago, the first time that I heard Linus say those words. So all of a sudden, there's a sentimentality brought about Christmas. My past Christmases, my family's past Christmases, there's this sentimentality. And all of a sudden, with this sentimentality are these pictures stamped in gold and green and silver foil. The ones on our Christmas cards that get us the idea of what the nativity must have looked like. 
And there are always these quiet pastoral scenes because we hear Silent Night in the background and that's what we think that it was. And again, there's nothing wrong with tradition, nothing wrong with sentimentality. But what did it actually look like? What was it really like? What did the nativity look like from heaven? Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, points this out. And he says, this is what it looked like in heaven. And we all know these words. A great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pangs in the agony of giving birth. Then another portent appeared, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But the child was snatched away and taken to God, to his throne. And then he sums it up, sums up this this battle in heaven and now on earth. He says, Rejoice then, you heavens, and those who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath, because he knows that the time is short. This is why the rescue was needed right here. This is why all of that happened. This is what Christmas looked like from heaven. See, in daily life, parallel histories occur. One on earth, the other in heaven. Revelation puts them both together. I've never seen Revelation 12 inside a Hallmark card, have you? I wonder how Hallmark would draw that dragon. Because certainly the angels that are drawn by Hallmark don't elicit, do not be afraid, okay? They're always very cherub-like little, little creatures about this big. One of those show up, does he have to say, don't be afraid? No. So I wonder what Hallmark would do with the dragon. It would probably be a pink dragon. You know, and its horns probably be curly at the end. I, you know, I don't know. But Revelation brings the views together. On earth, a baby is born. A king gets wind of it. A chase ensues. But in heaven, the great invasion has began, begun. A daring raid by the ruler of the forces of good into the universe's seat of evil. Wow. See, in a hostage situation today, we have teams of trained and armed personnel that carry out such rescues. And what do they rely on? They rely on talent. They rely on skill. They rely on technology. They rely on superior weaponry. They rely on force. They rely on all these things to carry this out. When I first started studying this before, we didn't have the example of SEAL Team 6. What we had, what we had was the Israeli commandos on the raided Entebbe. You all remember that? Gave us a new definition of commando, didn't it? But today we got SEAL Team 6. Captain Phillips. Osama bin Laden. And we all know, and we all seen, we've seen the movies, we've read the books, we know how they carry these off. So you need a, in order to carry out an invasion, in order to carry out this hostage freeing situation, what do you need? You need a team. You need a crack team. You need a team more than SEAL Team 6. What kind of team would God choose to carry out this raid? Who was on his team? He'd need a crack squad. 
wouldn't he? A physical and spiritual war would require very high priests, some prophets, some prophetesses, mighty warriors, sons of the Maccabees. That's who we need. That's who we need. How many know the story of Hanukkah? The Maccabean family freed all of Jerusalem from the entire Greek army, Antiochus Epiphanes, and all by themselves. That's what we need, right? That's what they would need. Who did God pick? An old semi-retired priest and his barren wife. A widowed carpenter living in the poorest of poor regions in all of Israel. And his teenage bride-to-be. Now, when I say teenage, I might be pushing it a little bit. She probably was 12. See, we, we, we don't get it sometimes. I was thinking we had the perfect example standing up here just a few minutes ago. Okay? We, had, we had the young girls, and then we had the, the un-young girls. still much younger relatively. But when we put on our, uh, passion, uh, our nativity uh, plays every Christmas, who do we always cast in the role of Mary? Women as young as Amy and as Janae. When actually, she was more Zoe's age. In fact, she probably was Zoe's age. This is his crack team of commandos. And then the Messiah himself, a son of David, yes. Using David's tactics, using his military might and warrior, don't think so. A baby wrapped in rags, his arms tight up against his little body. So it starts out as expected. Send in the force, right? Who comes first? The angels. All right, now that makes sense to us. Send angels, Lord. That makes a lot of sense. Gabriel, send a whole bunch of angels, man. Just, just, just get down there. Get it done. Pull off this hostage-freeing situation. So I often, wonder, I often wonder how the angels reacted when God told them what the plan was. Don't you think there was a day when he got them all together and said, here's the plan. Okay, so he announces. He brings all the angels together. And, of course, they're very orderly creatures. So they're all in row by row. Okay? And this this rose as as far as as far as you can see. And he announces, "I'm going to go save humanity." You guys have seen the trouble that they're in. You know that the trouble that they're in. I'm going to go save them. Gabriel, I need your help. Gabriel runs up and says, "Yes, Father, I've been waiting for you to ask me. I've got it all set. I've got it all set. I have your white horse. You can ride." I, I, I have the robe, I have, I, I, I have the, the king of kings, lord of lords, you know, for your leggings. Oh, man, I have your two-edged sword, I have your bow. You are going to look so good. No, Gabriel, not this time. That time will come. That time will come. But this time, I need to provide for my children first so I have a reason to go get them later. I need to put the beginning back in their end. So Gabriel goes, okay. As he puts aside all that stuff, sets it down. Okay. How are you going to do that? 
I'm thinking I'm going to become one of them. And I'm going to die a death that will free them from death. And I will live a life that I can give to them as a gift. I bet that shut the room up real quick. If there are any angels, you know, talking or passing notes, I bet they quit right there. They were silenced. They were astounded. And then there's this one particular row amongst all these heavenly creatures. There's this one row. I call it the been there, done that row. It may have more in it, but it has at least three men sitting in it. And amidst that whole sea of angels, you see these three little hands kind of question, question, excuses. I'm not sure that we're, you know, out of place speaking, but we've been there, done that. That's why we wear these shirts, been there, done that. And the only way we made it was because you were sitting on your throne, Father. You're telling us you're going to abandon this throne? You're going to go down there? You're going to become one of them? Moses takes up the conversation for Elijah and Enoch. And he says, Lord, I don't know if you remember, but let me refresh your memory. When I was a baby, I was nearly drowned by a maniac pharaoh. You do understand there is nothing more helpless than a human baby. They can't do anything for themselves. There is nothing more helpless than a human baby. You realize that, don't you? God says, of course I do. Don't worry. I'll have help, Moses. I'm I'm sure you will. Who's going to help you? God says, angels. Oh, okay, angels. All right, I get it now. That's, uh, that's, That's a good move, Lord. Good move. Angels. That's... That's, that would be a good move. And some humans. Okay, I, I, I can see that. Who, uh, it must be a crack team, okay. Some Davids and some Joshuas and some Samsons. All right, now we're talking, now we're talking. So who are you going to use? And then he shows them. And Moses goes, that kid? That little girl? That poor carpenter? He says, oh, i got a couple of descendants of yours, too. They're ancient. (laughs) In fact, the angels don't even have a role at all. They turn out to be messengers. They're not carrying no weapons. Just their mouth. They turn out to be messengers. They go to Zachariah and Elizabeth first. And Elizabeth becomes pregnant. And the angel comes to this kid. We think of Mary. Think of Zoe. I'm sorry to pick on you, Zoe, but you're right here. And you're the right age. I would ask her, what would you think? What would you think if an angel showed up one day and told you you were going to be pregnant with the Son of God? How many ladies here will volunteer for that when you were 13, 12? Nobody would volunteer for it, except thanks to Hallmark and thanks to a few classical painters. What do we see in Mary receiving the, the Annunciation? She's receiving it like you're just telling her the bus schedule for the day.
First of all, she's in her late 20s or early 30s, okay, so she can handle it a little better. But she's just sitting there, oh, I'm going to get pregnant. He came to her and said, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and wondered what sort of greeting this must be. She was perplexed and she was also what? She was also afraid. You know why? Because that's what he says next. The angel said to her, don't be what? Don't be afraid, Mary. For you found favor with God. And now you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son and you'll name him Jesus. You can see why he used the angels as messengers, right? They're eloquent. They're eloquent. They're laying it out there. You conceive in your womb and bear a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great. Be called the son of the most high. I'm hoping he wasn't yelling at a 13-year-old little girl. And the Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over the house of Jacob. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Isn't that gorgeous? Isn't that beautiful? It's profound as the most profound words ever spoken. But the 12-year-old little girl has something a bit more mundane on her mind. Just a little bit. She says to the angel, how can this be? I'm a, I'm a virgin. Remember, she's engaged, right? A virgin about to be married. A 12-year-old little girl being told by an angel that she's going to get pregnant. And not only is she going to get pregnant, there's going to be a little something special about this baby. Isn't going to be any old Nazarene, right? But what's on her mind? But I'm a virgin. Get it, Mr. Angel? He then goes on to explain that the conception will be of the Holy Spirit. She's got to be thinking, oh, great, that'll be easy to explain. The village will certainly accept that answer. See, today, Philip Antiazzi says, today when an un, a million unwed teenage girls get pregnant every year, this predicament has lost some of its force. Just before I stepped up, I asked Nellie, the youngest mother she ever took care of. She was 13. You had a 14-year-old who had two, actually, before she was 14, right? Two at 14. Babies having babies. So this story kind of loses a little bit of its force when we have lived in a society that that happens and happens on a regular basis. But I want you to picture that in ancient Jewish community, especially the one the size of Nazareth, which you probably could fit inside our parking lot and our building. You take a close-knit ancient community and maybe they aren't going to take this story so well. This is not going to go away quietly. An engaged woman who became pregnant was an adulteress, subject to death by stoning. Enter Joseph. He has every right to demand satisfaction. By the law, he has every right to demand that Mary be stoned. And right now, make her father pay the double the bride price to do all of that, all to protect his honor. Because up until this point, the man has always been considered honorable when they enter into the marriage agreement with a family. 
He has every right to do this. By law, he can do this and walk away with his head held high with honor and still be an honorable member of the village. But he decides to do something else. He says, Joseph, being a righteous man, was unwilling to expose her to public public disgrace and planned to dismiss her quietly. He found another way to do it. Another way to do it. He would not be able to keep his honor of this, but the angel comes to him and tells him God's plan. So he decides to take her as his bride, despite how unpleasant it will be. Can you imagine what he went through at work? Hey, Joseph. Notice Mary's getting a little thick around the middle. Is that angel feeding her now, too? And probably much worse than that. What must have been like for these two? Ladies and girls, put yourself in Mary's place. Men, put yourself in Joseph's place. I think it's harder for the men to do that. Because again, we don't live by such rules. We don't live, you know, a society that does this. But put yourself in their place. How many times did Mary review the angel's words when she began to feel the Son of God's little legs kick against the walls of her uterus? How many times did Joseph second guess his own encounter with the angel? Was it really? Maybe it was just a dream. As he endures the shame of living among villagers who can plainly see the shape, changing shape of his little fiance. When you read the accounts of Jesus' birth, you might tremble a little that the fate of humanity rested on these little shoulders. C.S. Lewis wrote about it. He said, the whole thing narrows and narrows until it comes down to one little point, small as the point of a spear, a young Jewish girl at her prayers. The fate of all humanity comes down to a young Jewish girl and her prayers. This is who God puts in place to save you and me. Mary's got some help, though. She goes to the one person who may understand her. You know who that would be? Her cousin Elizabeth. That's right. In those days, Mary set out and with haste to a Judean town in the hill country where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. The Judean hill country around Jerusalem is beautiful. It's beautiful even to today. It's the greenest part of all Jerusalem that you will. But it takes, I would say it would take about three hours or so to drive Okay, from Nazareth to there, about three or four hours. So she takes off, and she's traveling by whatever, and she's pregnant. But notice, she takes off with haste. Why? She's got to be tired of it. Not only is she 12 years old and pregnant, but she's putting up with this every day. She gets out. She gets away. She enters the one person's house who may understand what's going on. She greets Elizabeth. See, but the contrast between these two pregnancies, wow. The whole countryside is talking about Elizabeth's miracle pregnancy. Mary has to hide hers in shame. I just agree with the commentaries that, that, that say that at this point in time, she chose to come to be with Elizabeth because she was trying to hide. She's fearing for her life every day. Because every, any day, 
a village elder can show up, take her by the hand, take her out to the square, and they can stone her to death. In a few months, John the Baptist will be born with fanfare. Midwives, relatives, traditional village chorus celebrating the birth of a Jewish male. Jesus, though, is born far from home. Not even a midwife present. You know, a male head of household could have went and sufficed for the census. That was all that was required. Okay. He takes his pregnant wife all the way through her third trimester, ready to pop any day. And he puts her on the back of a mule and he takes a one-day journey to Bethlehem. Two-day journey, probably. I don't think Joseph trusted the village. I don't think he trusted that she would be there when he got back. I'm sorry, Mary. I'm sorry, I really am. But I've got to take you with me. And if he'd ever talked to Micah, he would have known he was going to have to anyway. It would have been hard to talk to Micah because Micah came about 800 years before Joseph. But, you know, 800 years ago, Micah said, As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, the smallest of clans, this is where it will happen. So this is the crack team of commandos. They look pretty pathetic on the surface, don't they? They're certainly no SEAL Team 6, are they? But they did accomplish their mission, didn't they? That's why you and I are here. That's why we still celebrate these words. I don't believe that they pulled it off. I don't believe they pulled it off by any means of the word. This is what God is trying to tell you. God does the saving, not us, not people. He saves. This is why he takes the humblest of humble to, to pull this off. This is why he didn't put together an ancient Israeli version of SEAL Team 6 or Commandos. It's why he picked them. They teach us a great lesson. One is that a work of God comes with two edges. It's with great joy and it's with great pain. See, we're the ones that put the pain in the formula, didn't we? So God brings tremendous joy. And, and those angels that night pr- pronounce this message of great joy, tremendous joy, into a planet that experiences nearly none of it. And then just asks us to find it in our humility, in our humanness, in our fallen humanity. He just asks us to find that joy. And then to ask us to believe that one day, one day, one day those angels are going to show up again. And this time, he's going to be on the tailing end of them. And he will punctuate those words. I bring you great tidings of great joy. And he'll call us all together and he'll say, let's go home. Let's go home. I think of this team, though. I think of the humility. I think of the poverty. The most humiliating of circumstances. But this was his team. It's that humility that he used to carry out this very mission. So let me help you with a <clears throat> a little bit of a living parable written by J.B. Phillips, the author of the Phillips translation. 
Bible. He helps us to get a handle on Christmas and the reason for the season. A senior angel showing a very young apprentice angel around the splendors of the universe. They view whirling galaxies and blazing suns. They flit across the infinite distances of space until at last they enter one particular galaxy of 500 billion stars. As the two of them draw near to the star we call our sun and its circling planets, the senior angel pointed to a small and rather insignificant sphere turning very slowly on its axis. It looked as dull and dirty as a tennis ball to the little angel whose mind was filled with the size and the glory of the universe he had just seen. Senior angel says, I want you to pay particular attention to that one right there. That one. Well, it looks rather small and dirty to me, said the little angel. What's so special about that one? He listened listened in disbelief as the senior angel told him that this planet, small and insignificant and not overly clean, was the renowned visited planet. You mean that our great and glorious prince went down in person to this fifth-rate little ball? Why would he do a thing like that? The little angel's face wrinkled in disgust. Do you mean to tell me that he stooped so low to become one of those creeping, crawling creatures on that little floating tennis ball? Dirty tennis ball. Senior angel says, I do. And I don't think he would like you to call them creeping, crawling creatures in that tone of voice. For strange as it may seem to us, he loves them. He went down to visit them, to lift them up, to become like him. The little angel looked blank. Such a thought was almost beyond his comprehension. Is it beyond yours? It's beyond mine. Yancey then notes, he says, we live in parallel worlds. One consists of hills and lakes and barns and politicians and shepherds watching their flocks by night. The other consists of angels and sinister forces somewhere, places called heaven and hell. Both worlds come together one night. Revelation 12 views them together. Cold and dark in the hills of Bethlehem. God who knows no before or after enters time and space. God who knows no boundaries takes on the confines of a baby's skin. We read this last week. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things are. Hold together. The true words written about that Messiah, but the very first witnesses of the Messiah's coming, what did they see? A baby struggling to work, never before used lungs, not able to control his bowel or his bladder, relying completely on this little 12 year old girl and her young husband. The raid was successful. Amen? The rescue made possible. 
It's not like a commando raid on a hijacked airliner. Commandos are willing to die for hostages, but they don't go to die for hostages, do they? This baby did. He was born, he lived, he died, he was raised and is living again, and he's coming back, coming back for the reason for the season. He's coming back to carry out his Christmas tradition. That's you and me. So we may have called this traditions, is what we called it. And again, I said last week, there's nothing wrong with traditions. Live your traditions. But all I ask this Christmas is that you inject a little bit more life into them. A new way of looking at them. A new way of carrying them out. And that we truly, truly remember what God has done for us. What he is doing for us. And what he will do for us yet again. So since it's actually December this Sabbath and it wasn't last Sabbath, I get to actually say Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much, Lord, for this season. This season, again, when even the hardest of hearts are injected with a warmth that they may not be able to explain or understand. I thank you that you have given us a little bit of understanding, just a a little bit as to what we are celebrating and why. And Lord, I just ask that some way, in some special way, that we can share this with the world this Christmas and this year to come. We have community, we have friends, we have family, Lord, who, who feel that warmth, but they don't know where it comes from. And we just ask that, like no other time, that it, during this Christmas and the year to come, that we truly be your hands, your feet, your warmth, that we carry your hug, that we carry your warmth and your love this Christmas. Just ask that you take our traditions and that uh, you inject new life in them and that we truly can, can feel that life as the holidays close in around us. Keep everybody safe, Lord. Safe from harm and from temptation. Safe from stress of the holidays. Safe from whatever may be happening and then continue to bring us. We, we thank you of how you've cared for us during flood and drought. Again, bless this family. We thank you so much for our your tradition that you have made uh, for us and that for our traditions to become you also, we ask. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.